Hello, and a very warm welcome to Wonderful Women with Susan Stewart podcast. This is season one, episode one, and I'm here today to tell you what it's all about. So if I cast my mind back to around 15 years ago, I was attending a training in the Salisbury Centre in Edinburgh, beautiful historic building um, that had been used for meditation for decades and, and the atmosphere in there was just phenomenal. I was training to be a mind detox therapist, which I still do. And I was surrounded by amazing people. And we were a group of us, the women, we were still, I think at that time, the women made the tea, even although we were feminists, we thought. However, I can remember standing in the kitchen and just feeling absolutely full of love, connection, and in awe of these women that were training with me. They were from all over the world. We'd only been together for about four hours at that point, but we were all connected. And I just blurted out, I just want to start a wonderful woman uh, movement. And they turned to me and said, Susan, yes, you should. You definitely should. So we talked a little bit about what that would look like, how we would launch it, how wonderful it would be. And of course, we all went away in our merry way. And I didn't do it. We didn't do it. And life took over as it very, very often does. I did go on being a mind detox therapist. It's part of what I still do today. Um, however, I didn't start the Wonderful Women movement. And back then, there wasn't any social media to speak of that was very effective. There wasn't podcasts. So it would have been a very manual labour, probably live event um, sort of proposition. So it was it always seemed too big. So fast forward to December 2021, and I was listening to a lecture by Jean Houston at the Altered States Conference in America on my TV through YouTube. <laughs> However, it touched my soul. She is an amazing woman. She's a spiritual leader, spiritual teacher. She works with on peace missions around the world. She was mentored by some of the most incredible people of you know her lifetime. She actually met Einstein when she was seven years old. Can you imagine that? And at, at that point, she had a discussion with him about it's not academia that um, brings you on and, and takes you to the place that you need to be. It's your imagination. Mm, more of that later. So Jean was saying in this lecture, the main gist of it was that we've had the hero's time. We've had the, the time of men leading us for hundreds of years. Now is the time of the heroine. Now is the time for women to take the lead. And, I, and that just touched me. It touched my heart. It touched my soul. And I really thought, 
You are right, Jean. You are right. So what can we do? What can I do to be one of these heroines of our time? Or how can I find the heroines of our time? How can I open a conversation on this subject? And then it popped into my mind, wonderful women. This is the time for the wonderful women movement. So it all came from there. Uh, the first season, I have got the most incredible, wonderful women that I know from all over the world um, are going to join me. Each season, we will have a bit of a theme. Season one, we're going to be talking about an event or a challenge that you've gone through that's changed the trajectory of your life. And we all have. There's not one single one of these women that I have spoken to, that I have asked to be my guest that has said, oh, that's never happened to me. In fact, it's been more, oh my goodness, I've had so many of these um, life events and challenges. I'm going to have to really think about which one will be the one for me to talk about. So that is what we've got to look forward to in our first three months. I hope to... to publish um, the podcast every Tuesday at 8am. It will go out on YouTube and it will go out on all the uh, usual audio channels as well. Um, I am learning, so please stay and learn with me. And of course, it's not only for women, it's for people, men as well. We like men. You don't, you're not... Uh, just because you've been heroes for so long, you're still our heroes. So how about listening to some heroines for a while? So a little about me. I live in the Highlands of Scotland, beside the sea. I love nature. I walk every morning, which I love walking. It's amazing to the extent that I'm going to be walking the Camino this October, um, which is a, about 500 mile walk from the north of France to the Camino de Santiago in the south of Spain. So it is a pilgrimage. I'm not doing it for charity or anything. I'm doing it for me. Uh, so I'm training just by walking along the shore every morning. Nothing drastic. I worked in the corporate world for um, most of my working life. Um, I was involved in every digital um, revolution, I suppose, that there was. I could work for, for the BBC. I can remember when we went from recording on tape, you know, the reel-to-reel -reel tape, to digital recording, which was supposed to be a lot easier. But let me tell you, I could take a breath out cutting and splicing a tape. It took me ages to work out the digital technology. Um, I then worked in telecoms uh, and at the end of my corporate career, I worked for Sky TV. Most of the time I was sales focused, but I was a different kind of sales trainer. I always trained people on expanding their heart, on realizing that the magnetic field of their heart um, propelled round their bodies by eight meters. And all they had to do is think love um, as they were walking into a room to close or sell their most amazing deals so that was a bit of it but has that piqued your interest it certainly did with the people that I worked with but I loved it 
So when I was 53, I took early retirement. I then opened a boutique in Inverness, the capital of the Highlands, totally by accident. But it was great fun. We sold um, beautiful Scottish designers, niche Scottish designers, who if we didn't give them a platform, would have only been selling through their websites. Um, so they loved us, we loved them. And we also, in our basement, sold designer pre-loved clothes. And we changed the mind of many women up in this Highlands about wearing second-hand clothes. I can remember them at the start, they wouldn't admit that they bought um, their clothes in our store, but then we became so on trend that you would see in our newspapers or social media, I bought this in Maggie and Susie's, and uh, they were very proud of it. I would also go around uh, schools or secondary schools and talk to the teenagers about disposable fashion and how fashion was is the second biggest polluter in the world. I did that long before Stacey Dooley did, by the way. Um, and we would run upcycling competitions for them to upcycle clothes and they would win a prize and sometimes they'd come in and work with us for a day because they really loved the store. So that was my by accident boutique. When lockdown happened, we didn't reopen because it was going to be too difficult. It would have been too difficult um, to be in retail in the centre of town in a small boutique. We, wouldn't, we relied on having, you know, a shop full of women drinking Prosecco and having a party on every Saturday. We couldn't have done that. So sadly, we closed. But just before lockdown started, I had launched a health programme. I had gone through an incredible transformation myself a couple of years prior to that. Um, I had cured myself of arthritis, brain fog, energised myself and also lost £55, practically writing my own um, health programme. I had done with diets. I'd been a yo-yo dieter for 20 years and that's what brought me from size 12 to size 22. I was done with diets. So I now help people doing exactly what I had done. And I have, I am so healthy now. I'm in my 60s. I am healthier than I've been since I was 20 something. And I also mentor um, small businesses on taking themselves online, how to also how to promote themselves and um, launch themselves on social media. So that is me and that is what I do. But I also now am the presenter of Wonderful Women podcast and I hope this is going to go on and build and grow around the world. I hope everybody's watching and I hope if you are watching you will share and also I would love you to hit subscribe. Another thing I'm doing this year is writing my book intermittent fasting the natural way so that is coming out in August so I that is something that I really <laughs> have to get on with doing and stop procrastinating but it's another beautiful project so I hope you're going to tune in every week is tune in the right word I don't know but it sounds okay doesn't it and I really really look forward 
to getting to know you all. Welcome to Wonderful Women podcast with Susan Stewart. I hope everyone is listening and I would ask you to share this far and wide and hit the subscribe button, please. I am so delighted today to have Lisa Buchanan with me, who is a feminist blogger. Hi, Lisa. A writer, a mother and a women's rights activist. Um, this season, we are covering the beautiful question of, can you share with us a time or an event that changed the trajectory of your life? And I am absolutely blown away that not one single woman that I've asked this question of has said, Oh, I can't think of anything. In fact, most women like Lisa have had to go away and think about it because there's so many events and, and challenges that have changed our lives. So without further ado, I'm I've stated the question, Lisa. And did I get the introduction right? Is that okay with you? And what event in your life has changed it and changed the trajectory? Great. Thanks, Susan. Well, thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. I'm really excited to have this conversation. And as you said, I've been thinking about it for a few weeks now. What, what is the one thing or what's the, the sort of most significant thing that has changed the tra trajectory of my own life? And um, without a shadow of a doubt, it has to be my journey through fertility treatment to have my son. Um, and then all that has come with motherhood since then. So I started fertility treatment, gosh, I almost can't remember now. Um, I think it was back in 2014. And before you start, there's quite a lot of administration involved. So you sort of go to your GP, you make the referral, they pass on your details to the fertility clinic. And you're kind of in that system for about a year. So there's a lot of anticipation of, oh, when am I going to get to start treatment? And, you know, is it going to work? And or when is it going to work? Because initially that was all I was thinking. It was definitely going to work and it was going to work first time. And, you know, I wasn't going to have any difficulties. Yeah. So that was kind of the, the initial phases. And then I realized that life was not going to be a nice straight line to my goal and that all the things that I had learned as as a young woman about how to how to make it you know how to um I guess build my career how to um fashion out a, a life for myself all the things that I had done which were very much based on education work career honestly they weren't very much used to me when I was sat on the exam table with my legs and stirrups and facing fertility treatment. So yeah. um, I had this very effective sort of infrastructure around about my life. And, and it was literally of no use to me because no amount of um, medical, uh, no amount of educational qualification was going to help me achieve this result. In fact, I had to entirely give my body over to the to the laboratories to the you know to the the fertility clinic to the doctors to the specialists to the lab technicians 
And honestly, I hadn't thought about it at all at that point. I just thought, you know, it would be like blowing your nose, you know, go along and it'll all be easy and straightforward. And must nothing been, could have been further from the truth. That must have been hugely challenging. You know, we, we, we probably don't realise what women go through um, going through the, the, these treatments. I'm really excited to hear about this. And, and my heart is with you in this as well. You know, you're certainly a very strong woman, high achiever. However, you know, this is one thing in your life that you were desperate to achieve, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And it, although it is a bit of a cliche to say it, um, it, the process of fertility treatment, I think no matter the outcome, so whether you're successful or whether you're not, it's still a huge roller coaster. And just to give a little bit of insight into what's happening when you do then start having treatment. So I had a process initially called IUI, which is, um, stands for intrauterine insemination. Um, and just to try and explain it a little bit more, it's the, the process itself is basically you're matched with donor sperm. Obviously, you have your own eggs. And it's a bit like going for a smear test with a catheter and they use that the catheter to insert the insert the, the donor sperm yeah. so that's the process but of course what's happening in between all of that is the what for me became quite obsessive charting of my cycle so when was I going to be ovulating okay there's two days in the month where um, you get this little happy face on the ovulation test kit and I would get that test kit and then I would be off to Aberdeen the next day to get the treatment. And then I'd spend two weeks thinking, this is it. This is it. It's, this is going to be the one. And of course, in my first treatment, I absolutely naively assumed this was going to be the, the life changing treatment. And it was all going to be sealed and dealed um, with that one treatment. And so um, two weeks later, when, of course, my period came, there's no baby because your period is there and um, not to put too fine a point on it, but it was utterly devastating. At that point in my journey, I was so convinced that science and the medical professionals were going to be able to to give me the child that I had longed for for many years. So that kind of you're going there's the process bit which is is not the most pleasant you know and um, we don't all naturally sign up for um things that are feel quite difficult um for us sort of personally emotionally physically and then to to kind of be disappointed at at the end of that nonetheless I got myself back on the wagon and next month it was the same wait for the happy face um on the ovulation test kit next day off to Aberdeen um this time um, I was a bit better prepared because I kind of knew what was going to be expected of me. So I was a lot less anxious, a lot less nervous, and I wasn't wriggling up the bed trying to get away from the nurse. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> um, I, so that was that was quite, um, I guess, helpful in terms of going back for the second time. But that happened um, for eight treatments. And... Yeah, none of them were successful. So um incredible. I, and a 200, and I'd like to point out for anyone that doesn't know Lisa, this would be an over 200 mile 
round trip every time as well from where you live to Aberdeen are not the best roads. My goodness, eight <laughs> times, Lisa. I didn't realise it was so many times. You are a yeah, phenomenon. Um, well, I guess that's what all women in the Highlands and Islands area, anywhere between here and Aberdeen, if you want fertility treatment, that's where you have to go. And, you know, um, a, a woman's cycle waits for no one. So um, that is when, when the optimum time is, that's when you need to go. And um, I spent a lot of those journeys, um, particularly when I travelled by myself, um, journaling. And I, that was one of the things I wanted to, to sort of touch on briefly today was what kind of got me through some of those difficult times. So I would journal again quite obsessively about the treatment, about every single little detail of the treatment room, of the little chapel that I would go to, um, how I felt about things, who I met on the journey. And that was really just a kind of catharsis, a way to try and get out what I was feeling inside because at that point, I, I was, I guess I had this persona, this kind of work persona, this professional woman. And so kind of letting myself be vulnerable and talking about the devastation that I felt at not falling pregnant um, month after month. And then we would have some investigations, um, you know, further referral to different services for scans and different tests and all of those not really showing anything at that stage that I needed to be worried about um so yeah I guess in terms of the change from this kind of fairly rigid fairly direct clear knew where she was going to this kind of hot messy puddle on the bathroom floor every month when these things weren't working um, yeah, that, that was probably one of the trickiest things. And then as you progress through IUI, um, by the time you get to seven and eight, they start to give you some drugs. Um, so it's called drug-assisted um, IUI to try and boost um, your system um, to grow basically the size of what they call follicles. And follicles are basically your eggs, but they're trying to increase the size of those eggs so that when it meets the sperm, that there's a greater surface area. I'm not a technical expert on this, I should no, say, but, but that's yeah. my lay, lay person's understanding of what they're trying to do. Um, and so, again, initially I was thinking, it's okay, we've got eight turns. Okay, don't, don't be silly. Of course, it was never going to work the first time, but you've got another seven to go, or you've got another five to go. So constantly in a dialogue in my head, trying to rationalise my chances of success, mm -hmm. trying to hope. And I think that's probably something that's important to mention as well, this idea that you, you fill yourself full of hope. You know, we're kind of encouraged that we can dream things real, you know, and if you just believe yeah. hard enough, it's, it's going to be okay. And I bought into everything, you know, I drank the raspberry tea, I did yoga, um, I didn't drink alcohol, I followed all the rules, I was the best woman that I possibly could be in order to, you know, be as successful with, with treatment. Um, but, but actually, not, none of that worked. Yeah. <laughs> none of it really worked. And I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not saying don't do those things. Um, I certainly wouldn't counsel anybody to, to do that. But um, I, I kind of had this real hope 
um, try to control as much as I could. And then every month, um, over about, or maybe it wasn't every month, I think there were some months where it was back to back. And then there was a period in the middle where I took a short break and we did some investigations um, uh, instead. Um, but that kind of hope being dashed. And then by the time I got to treatment seven and eight, there was this um, kind of change in the process where you would go to Aberdeen on the second day of your cycle. So day one of your cycle is typically the first day that you bleed. Yeah. So I would bleed, it would be unsuccessful. And then on day two, I would be booking my train tickets or driving back through to Aberdeen. Yeah. And um, that was when I had the challenge of the internal scans um, whilst I was on day two of my period, I was thinking, I can't, oh, I can't wrap my head around this. Like something which is very intimate, very private. And all of a sudden um, we're going for more internal exams. And of course, the, the, the nurses are wonderful. The, the fertility yeah. nurses, they're absolutely fabulous. And they do everything that they possibly can to preserve your dignity, to, you know, to give you space, to support you. Um, so I really, I can't fault them. They were all absolutely wonderful nurses, but it brought up a, a huge sense of, or I guess feelings of, of shame and vulnerability and that I had to confront. I couldn't just sort of stuff them back down because it wasn't a one-off. It was a process that I was yeah. in over a long period of time. Um, so yeah, all the things that I maybe would have liked to have kept private I didn't have an outlet for them because they're not really the things that we talk about that no. as as women we yeah. might roll our eyes and say oh you know more ibuprofen or cramps or PMT but they're generally seen in a fairly negative uh, sense um they certainly are yeah mm. yeah so so I, I had to do a lot of unlearning and then I, um, so we took a little break whilst you then go into the next um, different set of treatment, um, which is um, IVF and vitro fertilization, which is probably what many people are, are more, more familiar with that process. Yeah. And then we met a private donor. And um, so fertility clinics are all highly regulated and governed by um, specific legislation um, guarding the, the anonymity of the donors, um, but also the rights of the child upon reaching 18 to know who their donor might be. There's obviously all the health screening that takes place in terms of the donor, you know, who they are, what their background is, the quality of their sperm donation and so on. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's um, and then there's a lot of questions of you as well in terms of your lifestyle and um, yeah, just your own health and your own lifestyle. And then we, yeah, we, we met this um, a couple privately and um, he had fathered, um, I think, three children. And um, an absolutely wonderful man. So if he's ever watching this, my absolute heart goes out to him um, for what he has done to, to create other families. Um, um, and so... I'll, I'll not go into all of that detail because it's like a whole other podcast. Yeah. Um, but um, 
that was a very different process. And I guess I had always felt a sense that I would love to have known the donor because that was something that I felt was important or could be important for any future child that I may have. Yeah. Um, and I really wanted that. But of course, the medical route doesn't allow you that to happen. Um, just the way the, the, the legislation um, uh, protects donors. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I really wanted that to work. And um, I'll, I'll spare you lots of jokes about turkey basters and lambing kits, but <laughs> what it was like. Yeah. Um, and again, not having those sort of social scripts for how do you welcome a, an anonymous donor into your home or you into their his home? And just there's a lot of language and sort of stories around about that that we don't hear about. And... Um, and how do you deal with that? So again, I was quite silent about it. I didn't talk to too, too many people about it at the yeah. time, but journaling a lot. You know? Journaling is amazing. It's life-saving, I think. And I'm surrounded by journals. I've, I've got one for lots of different things on the go all the time. Mm. And I loved going back to them and dipping in and going, oh, that was the lesson I was learning then. You know, but my goodness, and, and if you get in, you know, getting it down in black and white takes it, especially if it's something that is challenging and eating away at your soul, I think gives it an escape as well. And mm. um, yes, it makes it real, but also it, it's very cathartic. And yeah, and I, I am a fellow journaler. And <laughs> Always will be. <laughs> if you saw my desk right now, it's covered in them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess um I guess from there none of those um cycles were um successful. So um he he wasn't a chap who lived locally. So again, there was that sort of similar text me when you're when you think you might be ovulating to, you know, kind of create yeah. that kind of schedule so that he could travel or we could travel, whichever it was. Um, but none of those were successful either. Oh my so, goodness. Um, I've gone from this, I'm finding this medical stuff just so invasive and so difficult to, oh, this could be a much more relaxed way and this is nice. And it kind of, again, maybe my kind of idealistic kind of outlook on how things could be. Um, but none of those cycles worked. So I, I think we did about seven or eight of those as well. Wow. So, um, by this point, you're um, most definitely classed as um, someone who has unexplained fertility, infertility, sorry, unexplained mm -hmm. infertility. So normally, if you're in a heterosexual couple, that would be um, if you had been trying to conceive for a year um, and hadn't been successful. Um, obviously, I was in a same-sex relationship, so there was no amorous lie down on a Friday night was going mm. to let me fall pregnant. Yeah. Um, so um, unexplained infertility. So I went for, again for these um, tests, um, um, hysterosalpingogram, um, which always makes me laugh because it sounds like very close to the word hysterical. And that is pretty much how it makes me feel at the time. Oh, goodness. Um, but anyway, they um, they do their test and um, they're basically just making sure that um, the connections between your ovaries and your womb through your um, fallopian tubes are clear 
um, and that you know that um, there's kind of no blockages there. So, um, anyway, got through that process, and there was nothing obvious. The only thing that I learned there was that you know that diagram that you often see of a uh, of a woman's womb or her reproductive system, and it's sort of two ovaries, and it's sort of sort of triangle, and there's sort of loops connecting or tubes connecting. Yeah. I honestly thought that's what my system would look like until I saw it on the screen um, when they were doing the hysterosalpingogram. And I was like, oh, that, it, it's like going up the Bialik Nabah, you know, it's like these kind of loopy, twisting um, yeah. roots. Um, and what, one ovary was up here and one was down here. I was thinking, gosh, that's fascinating. We really don't know very much about our bodies until we, we have to yeah. really look into them. And um, what a journey these little sperm must have to, you know, they have to, to go exactly. on. You know, it's not like everything in life. It's not a straight there. It's like, Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things about fertility treatment is that um, there's a lot that you're shielded from if you are um, lucky enough to just fall pregnant um, just in the regular way. Um, you don't have to think about all these things, whereas I was being exposed to all this new knowledge, this new experience, these new feelings um, over a fairly short period of time. And that was, um, I guess, a bit of an unraveling of, of, of me and what I thought I knew and mm. who I thought I was. Um, so then kind of fast forward to getting to the IVF treatment, um, or the start of IVF treatment. So again, there's more admin, more waiting calling hello do you remember me my name's Lisa I'm on the list blah 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 yeah. and um again lots more information sessions um uh, more bloods I don't think I've got any veins left yet for um or now for people to take um blood out of because I've had so much so much taken really? um, but um anyway um so we got to um the fertility treatment itself or the IVF itself and um I had a, a sort of slight reaction to um, the drugs and the medication, and I got the I got the I got the instructions wrong, basically. And so, of course, I'm starting to beat myself up. What do you mean? How, how could I get that so wrong? How could I leave the consultation and not realize when I was supposed to start the protocol? Um, so there was a lot of beating myself up throughout this process, even though I there was a lot that I really couldn't. Um, control or influence yeah. um, I still felt it was my fault or that I was to blame or that I wasn't in some way good enough most capable enough able enough oh, which God. I now know of course is not the case but it's not I yeah. was um, I you know if I could have had a master's in in blaming myself then I definitely would have got a distinction um, oh, which would have God. satisfied my overachieving self but <laughs> wouldn't have done much for my soul that's for sure oh um anyway um I I didn't I took this bad reaction to um to the drugs and um I was at a conference at the time and I spent most of that conference um, on the bathroom floor feeling pretty grim. And most women will know toilet floors are not the place to be. So no. you really would not choose to be there. Definitely um, not. Anyway, um, a few a few days later, I, I sort of spoke to my GP and I just said, I just don't think I can do this anymore. I just, I don't know what to do. Um, and I'd come so, so far. This is 
we're now probably into the third year. Um, uh, sort of from the beginning of the process to, to, to the IVF. And I just, I didn't think I could, I could carry on. Even though I really desired to have a child, I just, there was nothing left in me. Like the hope was gone and the, the kind of rallying that I had to keep doing um, month after month, just it kind of, it got less, but the, the desire got greater. So it's a really, there's no sweet spot in there. <laughs> Yeah. Um anyway, um we we started um the down regulation of your system is basically where the kind of doctors sort of take over your menstrual cycle. So they use hormones um and you inject yourself um every day for a certain uh, time. Some people are on short protocols, and um, some people are on long protocols, um, so injections every day um for about three weeks. And even that, at that stage, I was very sensitive to, physically sensitive. Yeah. You know? I knew I had to do it. Um, and, and I have great admiration um, for, for people who, for other you know, more, more life-threatening conditions, have to do that on a daily basis. But it was just, I felt every, every single little thing was magnified because emotionally, I was so hurt and I was I was so vulnerable yeah. and, and very um, tense. Um, Everything would have been heightened, I would imagine. Every nerve ending would have been heightened. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was. That's a very good way to describe it. Um, so again, the the goal with IVF is um, and the drugs that they give you is to um, grow as many of your follicles, your eggs as possible, because they're trying to harvest those eggs. And um, so obviously every month when you menstruate, um, a, when uh, ovulation, an egg is released and it's just one, just one egg and it will be the size that it is. Yeah. Um, but through IVF, they're trying to harvest as many eggs as they can possibly get to increase your chances of success. So, mm -hmm. I was advised that 10 eggs would be a good, a good crop. <laughs> yeah. Um, five from each ovary is generally what, what they're looking for. So over a period of, of about a week, um, I would be going back to Aberdeen every other day or every couple of days so that they could scan me and um, measure the size of the follicles to see whether or not um, I would then come back the following day to have those eggs um, harvested. And in that process, they said to me, oh, you've, um, you've, you've got a cyst there. Um, we'll try and aspirate that cyst so that um, it's easier to get at the eggs. So not really thinking very much and fair enough. So I go back um, to you know the next few days to have the cyst aspirated and um, they give you a sort of a little bit of a painkiller and some antibiotics um, because they're basically piercing your ovary with a knife, uh, not with a knife, sorry, cut that, with a, with a needle. Okay. <laughs> no, no knives were here. No knives, okay, um, but needle's bad enough, Lisa, ne needle's bad enough. Yes, and um, we've all got moments in life where we really strongly remember something and I, I can, I, I remember that needle going through the ovary and um 
uh, and then um, the nurse is sort of making some signs. Oh, that's that's not what we expected. It's more of a kind of chocolate brown color as opposed to the clear color that a cyst mm-hmm. would normally be. Anyway, I'm sitting there in blissful ignorance, trying to think about anything else, distract myself from yeah. uh, where I am. And afterwards, um, one of the consultants come and says, you know, Lisa, you've um, reported in the past um, a significant period pain and you have um, a, some elevated level. I don't recall what that was now, but some elevated level in a blood test um, that would point to endometriosis. And these two facts, coupled with the fact that it wasn't a regular cyst, um, suggest that you have endometriosis now. Endometriosis is not something that you can diagnose without seeing it, without a laparoscopy. But they were they were pretty much saying 99% certain. And that was a real seminal moment for me where I realized I have not been listening to myself for a very long time. From the moment that my period started, and this was in pre-internet days yeah. <laughs> for, your, for your young listeners. Yeah. Um, and I, so we didn't have access to information, but I was certain that I had had endometriosis from being a late teen, I would say, um, uh, regularly passing out from pain, um, doubled up um, uh, with the pain, just all these kinds of symptoms. But after years of, of going back to the GP to try and um, going to consultants, um, there was no real answer. So Eventually, I just kind of internalized that and told myself that I wasn't strong enough, that I wasn't able to cope with, you know, the most basic of period pains. So I kind of kept all this inside and internalized it. But in that moment, the doctor told me that. And I thought, that's a lesson. That's a really important lesson that I'm only now going to start learning. Um, So the symptoms were obvious of endometriosis. I was very quiet about it, um, apart from when I, you know, I would be in public places and I would pass out and, you know, people would say, do you need an ambulance? And I'd be like, no, no, I'll be fine in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) I know what's wrong. I was desperately hoping that someone, I could be transported back into my house or somewhere more appropriate to to be dealing with it. Um, So I started to think about all the ways in which I had not listened to myself, ways in which... Um, messages about women and their bodies and their cycles are at best ignored but at worst actively used against us and I started to think about that first um, IUI treatment where I I just felt so ashamed Um, and, and of course the nurses were wonderful I have to stress that again and again the nurses were absolutely wonderful but no matter how wonderful they were, nothing took away from my feelings of shame, um, how I how I looked, how how I was like handling things, how emotional I was, all these kind of critical sort of judgments sitting up here on my shoulder, yeah. um, uh, or more accurately between my ears, touching <laughs> um, yeah. me for for it's such a long yeah and it's not just a one-off it's such a long period of your life to be feeling that Mm. but the uh, we know we we, you know it's it's you know anyone listening it's a huge lesson for everyone that we do know our bodies speak to Mm. us 
you know, and, and we have to listen because, you know, very often it, it's realizations like, like you've had and, and, you know, getting that diagnosis quite a way on from when, you know, your, your um, period started, but you knew all that time. You, we, we need to fight the medical profession, although I know they've helped you greatly, mm -hmm. um, but we need to stand up, finding a doctor that you can stand up and say, no, I know my body mm -hmm. too is, is, I'm sorry, few and far between. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, um, I've, I've done a lot of soul searching on this particular topic, you know, and of course, nowadays, um, uh, there's a lot greater awareness of endometriosis. There, Endometriosis UK um, does some, some great work um, raising awareness. There's a kind of average weight to diagnosis of seven years. I definitely buck that trend. So overachieving yet again, your <laughs> 24 years. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> not not applaud it. I was looking for. No, no. Um, and 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 of course there, there some um, endometriosis UK I think have um, representatives in the Highland areas. So they're, they're doing some really good um, and important work. Yeah. Um, but there was just this big lesson for me that I I hadn't listened. And, and and there was a real theme about that throughout my whole kind of adult life, really. Um, mm -hmm. So so not entirely surprised to be given the diagnosis. Slightly annoyed and frustrated that I hadn't been listened to because we could have avoided a lot of this. Um, I guess the the kind of the what I felt was quite a lot of kind of traumatic experiences. Yeah. You probably would have gone straight to IVF, or at least certainly if I'd have had a choice, I would have. Yeah. Because I it, it was probably never going to work. I mean, I, I say that not as a medical professional, but these questions certainly came up for me. So when when um, back into the, the kind of IVF process and we um, had to then, we went for the egg harvesting process, which was a few days later, and they got six eggs because one of my ovaries, unsurprisingly, didn't really respond because of the endometriosis. Yeah. Um, so they get six eggs. So I'm still rationalizing in my mind, six out of 10 is not bad, you know, it's okay. It's not bad. Yeah. It's, it's fine. I keep um, and it's one thing about fertility treatment that, that it's so full of hope yeah. because you want to create this child. Whatever your circumstances, whether you're um, a lesbian in the same sex relationship or you're a heterosexual couple mm -hmm. you know, with fertility issues on with either the, the guy or the woman, like you're still full of a huge amount of hope. Oh, but at the same time, there is this kind of harsh reality um, that the success rate is still only between 30 and 40 percent um, sort of 30 to 40 years after IVF treatment or fertility treatment like this started to kind of come become more mainstream yeah it's incredible so, um, anyway get these six eggs and um, they say um, we'll do our work um, in in the lab so they um, uh, the goal is they they meet with the donor sperm and um, hopefully they fertilize. 
Um, so said you can call back in a few days and um, uh, let us know, or we'll let you know how we're getting on. Um, so two days later, call and they say four eggs have fertilised, um, come for treatment tomorrow, and we'll see what the situation is then. So we've gone from an ideal of 10 to an actual of six to four eggs being fertilised and capable, or well, four eggs being fertilised. And then we go back for treatment and there's only one embryo. In fact, it's not called an embryo at that stage, but there's only one egg and sperm that is um, strong enough, viable enough to be inserted into um, my womb. And so we go to, um, uh, you know, we're all gowned up. We go into um, the, um, the treatment room and there's a, a lovely chap um, in, in the lab. So he's sort of in a side room and there's just a little window. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's, it's all very respectful. They're not looking at you. They're just, it's all sort of, I don't know, done through hand signals or lots of experience on the part of these um, uh, clinical staff. Yeah. And then a lovely nurse, um, who um, fertility specialist, who is explaining what's going to happen. So um, it's similar process in terms of um, uh, the kind of catheter and being inserted. And you can watch this on a screen. So for me, um, I, all I could look at was the screen. So I was full of hope that there was this um, fertilized egg that was going to be passed um, basically into my womb. And I watched, I watched this tiny, tiny circle. It looked to me about five millimeters, but this tiny, tiny white circle be moved in, well, into my body and then in, into my womb. And then um, I think they did some counting and there was this gentle release um, of this tiny little white circle. Wow. And, um, and that was my son. Oh, Lisa. Um, that oh, was my son. And that, that, those moments will, will absolutely stay with me um, forever. I, I can't tell you after all this journey what this felt like um of course at the time I didn't know it was mm -hmm. going to be successful but there was only one um one egg that was fertilized out of the four that mm -hmm. was strong enough to be um implanted um and two weeks later I did a, a pregnancy test and 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 here here I am now oh. with a, a four-year-old um a four-year-old son that um it's just the love of my life. Um, so he's gorgeous. He is yeah. what a journey. He was worth the journey. I, I would do it all again. Yeah. Um, to to have my son. Um, I'm not sure that I would do it again. <laughs> to have another. It was a huge, a huge journey. Um, uh, emotionally. Um, for me as a woman, and then of course, um. I, I loved being pregnant. It was probably the best time in my life um, up until that point. Um, I had um, some, some challenges myself um, uh, with some uh, gestational diabetes and some, some pain and difficulty, but it didn't matter. Anything could have happened to me and I wouldn't have cared. I just had this beautiful baby boy growing in my belly and 
after years, I just, I felt so grateful and all I could do was talk to him and love him and hold him and just tell him how wonderful this was going to be. Um, Absolutely. And he so, changed the trajectory of your life completely. It really did. And um, although there would be a lot more changes um, for me to come af after he, he was born, um, I can honestly say that without fertility treatment, I it it was it was kind of life saving in a way, and I don't mean in the traditional sense of my life was at immediate risk. It wasn't, yeah. but it was life saving in that it opened me up to who I am and who I wanted to be, mm. and how I wanted to live. And although it would take me many many years, and I'm still on that journey, I'm most definitely not. Um, definitely not um, uh, sort of uh, the, the kind of it's not complete I suppose the story um it never will be it goes on I think Lisa it goes on and on you know for a woman in her, her take it from a woman in her 60s and I'm not being ageist it goes on and you know with her children mm -hmm. that they're, they're they're always our children and they're always life-changing mm -hmm. and um and I uh and we just go on and I know you're a great learner. You you, <laughs> um, you will go on developing and changing um, for the rest of your life, I'm sure. Mm, well, well, I hope so. Now maybe I've learned to how to do that, I suppose. Yeah. And I, yes, yeah, since, since then I um, kind of started to embrace, um, embrace, feminism women's rights writing from my own life experience um discovering the red tent movement um yeah. and i was always i was always supposed to be the woman that i am now but it was always in my head theoretically you know i always wanted to um i always wanted to write for example and lo and behold i didn't know as i was going through fertility treatment that i would be writing a book about fertility treatment I'm now working on the second draft of my memoir about fertility treatment. Um, you know, I um, have been doing a lot of activism um, in relation to, to women's rights and in various different networks and groups that I'm uh, a part of. And suddenly embracing who I am as mm. a middle-aged woman um, with a young son. Um, and although it's, I could, so I couldn't be more delighted. <laughs> Yeah. But it's it's I I suppose I almost want to qualify that in some way by saying, um, yeah, I th these are these are difficult journeys, these are difficult choices to make. Um, but the rewards are so incredibly worth it. Um and I don't just mean in terms of becoming a mother and having a son. Um, I mean, I can't imagine a more enriching experience um, or a more challenging one. Yeah. Um, but um, there's something about having been kind of so so kind of broken down emotionally in the moment, in these moments, um, and like a kind of compression fracture, you know, it gets worse, on, you know, the more yeah. Um, and then coming through the other side of that and thinking, actually, this is who I am. This is what I'm here to do. Um, and for me, that is writing, speaking about women's issues in a way that um, I'm not ashamed of or I'm not embarrassed of. Um, 
I don't always get it right or I think afterwards I could have been a bit more graceful or a bit better in the way that I explained that but that's part of the search isn't it it's part of the definitely is it definitely is I'm really excited to read your book well done second draft mm. um it takes some self-discipline to sit down and do <laughs> it doesn't it I'm, I'm in the middle of writing my book as, um, as well at the moment and and I I have to die do the time and if I don't write it down I don't do it that's another thing that journaling has taught me and um you know as far we we need more women like you um Lisa that will stand up for us we need to all stand up for ourselves but you know and I and I've got to say you do it so eloquently and, and with such passion and I've also got to thank you because it was through you sending me Jean Houston's um lecture in on uh, for Altered States Conference that re-triggered my um, uh, um, want to start, I, 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 you know, it goes back to 15 years ago, I wanted to start this wonderful women movement, but of course, life and work and all that took over, and I didn't. But when you sent me that um, lecture, oh my God, I've listened to it so many times, I've sent it to other people, um, and she is stating that the main gist of it, although there was so much in it, but that this is the time of women. This is the, you know, we are the heroines of our time and it's us that is going to change the world. It's not slating men. Men are wonderful, they, but they have been the heroes and they have been running things for long enough. If we want change, it's the women that are going to change the world. And you are one of those women, my darling. Definitely. Well, that's um, that's a, that's a, a great honour. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I'm in good company. Thank you. And I have, I just, I have absolutely loved listening to this beautiful story. I've still got a tear in my eye. I can see that. I, I can see that screen. And that was your son. I love that. And that was my son. How beautiful. Lisa, how beautiful. I will put a link um, through to your, uh, probably your Facebook page. Would that be the thing to do on the in the description? Um, yeah, that's fine. On your website? It's, it's my website probably is um, uh, probably, um, yeah, more use, a bit more. Time. Okay, and I, I will do all that. And I thank you very much. And I hope you will come back in future seasons where we will have other questions. But for today, Lisa, thank you so much for sharing. Lovely. Thank you for asking. My pleasure.